So we know that things like stress, weather changes, um, you know, all the things that are kind of asking them to go outside their comfort zone tends to expose them to higher risk for BRD. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. And our guest today is Dr. Jody McGill. So I'm going to read her bio here before we jump in with our conversation. Jody McGill received her MS in pathology in 2007 and PhD in immunology in 2010 from the University of Iowa, but we won't hold that against her here as a cyclone, uh, working with Dr. Kevin Lugge. Leggy. She did her postdoctoral fellowship at the National Animal Disease Center, USDA, studying the immune response to respiratory infections in cattle with Drs. Ray Waters and Randy Seiko. Jody's currently an associate professor in the Department of Veterinary Microbiology and Preventative Me- Medicine at Iowa State University. And the focus of her research is to understand the immune response to bovine respiratory disease complex and to develop intervention strategies to promote protective immunity in the respiratory tract of cattle and other species. Jody was awarded the John G. Salisbury Endowed Chair in Veterinary Medicine in 2021 and was recently selected to serve as the Assistant Dean for Research and Graduate Studies in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Iowa State, to which I have given her endless grief for going over to the dark side of administration. Welcome, Jody. <laughs> Thank you. And I should probably say that we're good friends and collaborators, which, again, is why I can give you grief. Yes, I'll be a good sport. (laughs) Well deserved. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We should start by saying, how is the administration position going? Are you enjoying that? Been a lot of meetings, learning, learning a lot about administration. I am getting some gossip that I wouldn't normally get, uh, you know, outside of my administrative position. So, well, there you go. It's got to come with some upside, I guess. So, <laughs> otherwise, I avoid gossip. You know how I am. I hide out in my in my lab. So. That's right. That's right. Nobody's less drama has less drama than Jody. I like it. <laughs> well, we like to start out our conversations here by just hearing a little bit about your story. So, tell us um, just kind of the highlights version of what led you to the position that you're in today. Sure. So. Um... I actually started my graduate training in, uh, well, at the medical school at University of Iowa. And so I kind of was at really basic immunology levels. We worked a lot with mouth models. And, and while I loved that, I kind of, um, I was pr- pretty burnt out by the end of my PhD work, uh, wondering, you know, am I ever going to be able to work on a species that actually matters? Because we can solve a lot of problems in mice that we can't in anything else. Um, as I left research for a while, I actually went to a diagnostic lab for about six months, um, during which time I realized I love research and I missed it, but I just needed to kind of shift gears into something more relevant. So that's what made me switch from 
kind of mouse models to pulmonary uh, respiratory disease work as a postdoc. Um, so that was awesome, and I fell in love and stayed there for a couple years, and then I went to Kansas State um, as an assistant professor for four years, and then moved back to Iowa State in 2018. So um, Iowa State is home, and also it's nice to you know be back in my alma mater where I graduated from my undergrad. Absolutely. I always like to joke on this show, it's it's not even six degrees of separation from Iowa State. It's usually two or three degrees or less of separation from my, our guest to Iowa State. So we like our cyclones. <laughs> we do. And living in Iowa is awesome. So. Although in February, maybe not. Yeah, right. February, this is a time where it doesn't matter how tolerant you are of Midwestern winters. We are over it by February. It ends in sight, though. The end is in sight, right? After we got an inch of rain this week and surely that and the birds are just to singing today. So surely that means that spring is coming and there's not snow in the five day forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start by talking a little bit about some of the things that you research. I know that so you and I have collaborated for a few years now and we'll talk about a little bit of our work and some of the um, kind of challenges and opportunities that come with working across disciplines. But I thought maybe we should start by helping our un- our listeners understand more about this thing called BRD, right? Because it is, I am slowly learning, multifactorial and very complex. It's right there in the name, right? <laughs> Bovine respiratory disease complex. Um, help us understand what that means and kind of what the ramifications are for us in the beef industry, because this is a really expensive problem for the beef industry. Um, it is. So yeah, that's our favorite thing to say. It's, it's multifactorial, right? Because it's, um, it, it hits your cattle when they're at their worst, essentially, right? So we know that things like stress, weather changes, um, you know, all the things that are kind of asking them to go outside their comfort zone tends to expose them to higher risk of BRD. Um, and then we know it's many pathogens, right? So there's several viruses that can contribute to the infection as well as um, the bacterial pathogens are usually, you know, natural, uh, part of the natural microbiome, right? So they're, they're hanging around in their respiratory tract already. Um, and then when they get stressed and get these viral infections, they kind of overgrow and usually it's the bacterial pneumonia that ultimately will kill your, your calf or, you know, require treatment with antibiotics. Um, and so that makes it challenging when we think about interventions because we're not trying to target one pathogen, right? We have multiple pathogens that we're trying to stop. Um, and it's, it's something if you vaccinate, you know, you have to do it far enough ahead that they have a, an immune response already ongoing that can protect them because if they're already stressed, uh, you can't really vaccinate them at that point, right? Then you're asking a stressed immune response to to produce antibodies or, or be protective when it can barely do its job. So um, timing, I think, is a really important issue for for BRDC and management, right? Management disease. We've learned a lot recently about, you know, don't wean your calf and castrate them and put them on a truck and and take them to the feedlot all in the same day. And I usually like that very much. So... (laughs) So let's let's talk a little bit more about a couple of things there. So um, I'm a feedlot nutritionist. One of the biggest points of the feedlot calf's career, if you want to think of it like that, that he's most likely to experience BRD is likely when we've just done all that stuff to him that you just mentioned. So we just trucked him in from a um, maybe from a growing operation or from his cow-calf operation. He's probably got some new buddies, right? So he's commingled. He's got exposure to new things. 
He doesn't really know how to eat yet. He might have been weaned on the truck. And maybe on top of all that, we castrated him, like you said. So what are um, that animal is kind of in a weird window, too, right? He's in a transition point as we think about going from dependence on maternal antibodies to development of his own. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of how that might influence how we make some decisions about what to do with that newly weaned calf? Um, well, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, vaccination and thinking about how we want to approach that. Um, and I think, I think we've learned a lot about knowing we can't immunize that calf when he has maternal antibodies and then never vaccinate him again. Right. So there's been, um, a lot of education in the field of, of vaccination and saying, you know, if you prime them and boost them when they're young, you're, you definitely want to consider another vaccine as they are entering that receiving period, right? Because of that waning maternal antibodies and our vaccines have a better chance of working. Um, kind of more relevant to the work you and I have been tackling is thinking about, you know, how can we feed that calf um, either before he leaves or in those first 30 days on the feedlot, you know, what kind of um, nutrition can we provide to make sure his immune system is functioning at its best? And um, so, you know, we've been thinking a lot about are there certain trace minerals or vitamins that we can provide that will help his immune system function optimally while he transitions over? Right. And so this is actually um, maybe just a brief story about how we kind of started working together. Um, when Olivia Genther Schroeder was my PhD student and then postdoc, or PhD student, she worked with you when you were a postdoc with Randy Sago at the USDA. It was just a few years ago. And then Olivia had like messaged me one day because she's working for Purina now. And she was like, did you know that she's like, I'm at a meeting and I just saw Jody McGill talk about vitamin A deficiency and respiratory disease. And did you know she's back at Iowa State? And I was like, no, but those all sound like interesting questions. And so we got together and had a chat or whatever, probably a beer somewhere. And uh, yeah, the rest was history, right? Like we've written some USDA grants together. We've got like two graduate students together and possibly going to have more in the future. So I I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about um, some of that foundational work. I know that it's in your model has really been in really young dairy calves. It's a little different than some of the beef stuff, but I think a neonatal calf is a neonatal calf, right? So talk to us about some of the kind of interesting findings that you identified when you think about that making a calf really vitamin A deficient, that was really one of your kind of main focuses. Yep. Yeah. So um, in some of that initial work, our goal was definitely to understand how um, vitamin A deficiency impacted the immune system. Kind of a, a, We started at the very basic level um, because in other species, there's been work that says it impacts, um, you know, makes rodents more susceptible to disease, for example. Um, and there's actually a lot of evidence in humans. And so um, the work in calves is there's some, but it's kind of old and it's not really very complete. So we started there with, can we create a vitamin A deficient calf? So most calves get um, a big bolus of vitamin A when they bring in colostrum. And then there's some vitamin A that they get through the milk. But um, we knew that we kind of had to interfere with that first big dose of vitamin A. Uh, in the colostrum, so we generated calves that were vitamin A deficient by getting a spray-dried colostrum replacer that was deficient in vitamin A, and then we had our, our controls that had complete vitamin A. And um, with those calves, we found that if we um, challenged them with 
bovine respiratory syncytial virus, they were much worse off. So they had lots of lots more lung pathology, more clinical disease symptoms. Um, they definitely were not happy compared to their vitamin A sufficient uh, friends. And so some of that was related to their antibody immunity. So caps will make um, protective antibodies in the respiratory tract, right? Like things like IgA. Sorry, jargon button. <laughs> um, and we knew that without IgA, they were not able to mount those responses nearly as efficiently. So they got much more sick. So right there, that told us that vitamin E is very important to protect you as cats um, in the respiratory tract. And work that we haven't done in our lab, but um, has been done by others, has shown that they're also more prone to scouring, right? So um, gastrointestinal disease is also really increased in cats that are deficient for vitamin A. So kind of both of your mucosal immune systems, the lung and the gut, need that vitamin to function optimally. And that makes a lot of sense when we think about one of the major functions of vitamin A to really be important in those rapidly dividing cells, which are things that we tend to find in epithelial cells. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, it's pretty interesting when we got to talking about was how um, that vitamin A deficiency also impacted trace mineral status, right? So as you recall, once we got to talking about those really deficient calves, you asked what their big status was, we went back and looked at, at liver and in lung tissues, and by being vitamin A deficient, they were also really deficient, which kind of compounded their issues because the two vitamins and, uh, well, I guess micronutrients need each other for absorption, right? Yeah, and it was actually... A- I mean, it's a cool example, right? We I talk about it all the time in class about how the minerals and vitamins have so many interactions with each other. We can't really change one without changing the other. And actually, it's crazy hard to make a calf uh, zinc deficient, right? Like we've tried for years to try to do different things. And it's just super hard because so many of our natural feeds have a decent amount of zinc. Um, and then here you had basically created these like double deficient animals, right? With being vitamin A deficiency and zinc deficiency. But we also know that those two things kind of have some um, synergistic and complementary roles in the immune system. And one of the things that I've always thought is fascinating about zinc, besides the fact that it's in everything, which makes it either super fun or super challenging to study, I haven't figured out which one yet, (laughs) Um, is, uh, you know, as we've been doing some of these studies related to zinc, we're finding out more about maybe zinc has a role in some of these immune cells, right? So Tell us a little bit about how, like, we've done some work where I'm able to basically take a blood sample from a calf and you're able to do some different sorting of those cells, looking at some of the different immune cells that are in there and kind of getting an, a, a picture of what that calf's potential to respond to disease might look like. And then maybe we can circle back about how some of our trials are looking at responses to those. Yep. Yeah. So we've done some really cool work Um one thing we really like to do is we're interested in how that calf is going to respond to a pathogen, right? And so we've developed this assay where if you pull cells out of the blood and you expose them to different components of some of these pathogens they might see, um, we can measure their response through pro-inflammatory cytokines. So basically, um, we can mimic the response that they would mount if they saw a pathogen in the lung, for example. So we've pulled out cells um and expose them to LPS, which is the component of a gram-negative bacteria, something like Castrella, Mucosida, or Mannheimia hemolytica. And so if you stimulate those cells in a dish, um, they'll produce all sorts of angry cytokines that we can measure. And 
Um, so we've done some like, supplementation trials looking at, you know, if, if the animals have more zinc in their diet versus less, then we mimic this pathogen situation in our dishes. Um, we've seen that they can make either more or less pro-inflammatory cytokines um, as a way of, you know, kind of predicting if we were to challenge this animal without actually making them sick, are they going to respond better or are they going to be more susceptible to, to disease? So we've done a lot of that work. Um, we've also kind of looked at, at different neutrophil functions, right? We know neutrophils are really important for eating and killing bacteria, and so we can We've done some of those assays in our experiments as well as another proxy for a bacterial infection. You know, what are your neutrophils going to do when they actually see that pathogen? So I want to touch base on a couple of uh, things that you talked about there. One of them is, um, I guess, is kind of circling back to the fun part about working in an interdisciplinary area, right? So when you and I get together, we we joke, right? She mentioned the jargon button earlier, but we joke that sometimes you have to bring your thesaurus with you or your jargon button to be like, whoa, stop. I didn't understand half of what you just said, right? And in all honesty, that's one of the biggest challenges with these kinds of things, right? It's hard to have graduate students who can have expertise in both immunology and nutrition. It's hard to have people who have the lab skills and the animal handling skills. So, you know, honestly, I think this is one of the biggest challenges with kind of air quotes raising interdisciplinary kids in our graduate programs, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been um, it's been fun for sure, but we've we we've learned a lot, I think, right? After your students to um, well, and then they talk to to one lab, and you know we think this is the priority, and they talk to the other lab, and this is a different priority. But uh, I think we've. Our, one of our PhD students is doing pretty well. It's taken the immunology classes, has now taken the nutrition classes, is going to grow up to be a good interdisciplinary scientist. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm not belittling that at all. I'm, I'm just saying that I think that that is one of the things that maybe when administration are so busy doing this top-down pressure to say, everybody go find an interdisciplinary group and go get a big grant and things like that, right? Like that seems so simple to them. And it's not at all, right? Because it, we have, you know, again, it's like when I try to do precision livestock stuff, right? And it's like you've got a collaborator in engineering and they speak code language and somebody else on our side is speaking like head per day feed cost kind of language, right? So they're talking totally different things. They struggle on working days and, you know, like getting things set up. And that's that's fine. It's cool that we're going to advance the science, but there are just true logistical challenges with trying to figure out how to support these students, how to, you know, because we almost need two students funded for every grant that we do, right? Just because you've got two different expertises. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, I mean, we're both relatively um, lab savvy, right? Like we do a lot of um, work in the lab and, and research trials, but imagine now if we introduce, um, you know, the social scientist or the engineer into some of those situations, it's just going to get a little bit crazier. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's been fun to work together is because, you know, we're both very driven and very passionate about what we do. But I think we've also tried to practice good communication, right? And so that's one of the things we've actually taught a science communication class together for an honors seminar, things I'll never let Jody talk me into again. <laughs> I learned a lot. We both regret that. <laughs> We learned a lot, though. Um, but, okay, so circling back here where I was going with this jargon button story was, talk more about the 
you talk about pro-inflammatory cytokines. And when I think about like the recent pandemic and stuff, I think about things like the cytokine storm, right? And things like that. So help our listeners understand a little bit about whether or is lots of cytokines a good thing or do we not want as many cytokines? Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a loaded question. And I went to a meeting this um, this fall, the conference for research workers on animal diseases, CURWAD, we call it, which we have to have these long names, but I call it CURWAD. <laughs> yes, CURWAD, exactly. I like it. CURWAD. <laughs> <laughs> there was this whole session, though, with, I mean, a lot of really big BRD researchers, and like half of them are saying, you know, inflammation is good, and half of them are saying inflammation is bad. Um, because you're right, cytokine storm is ultimately, I think, what what damages the lung much more than the pathogen itself. So a lot of the pathogens that we study, I mean, they make the lung kind of sick, but but when the immune system makes things like bleach and hydrogen peroxide to try to get rid of those pathogens, then you get all of the tissue damage, and that animal's lungs are scarred, and they don't work well anymore. So, um, and that same, same hand, though, without um, a robust, you know, a, a quick and strong pro-inflammatory response, we also know that then that pathogen can become established. So I think timing is really important. Um, And when these animals are stressed, I think they can't mount that really quick and potent response. And so that's when it kind of drags on forever and and it sort of amplifies itself. So, I mean, if you can get a, a fast response early and stop the infection, you're much better off. But if you if that pathogen becomes established, we know that the longer that draws out, the more tissue damage that results. So it depends as, a, as in all things. Um, yeah. So so tell me a little bit more about that. What do, you, what do you know from the immunology standpoint? What are the things that would help a calf have that fast and hard, hit it out of the park, be done with it, but then be able to pull back and not have that long lingering cytokine storm? Um, well, I mean, a lot of it, I think at this point we know it's genetic, um, and there are some really interesting uh, microbiome studies suggesting that if your calf's microbiome looks right, he might be, be better at responding. Um, in our lab, we're interested in, um, actually some therapies that will kind of help this pro-inflammatory response be ready to go, you know, primed. And so that when we know that that calf's entering a situation where he's potentially going to be exposed, um, he might be more prepared or primed to respond to that. So um, a few years ago, there was a, a product that was on the market called Delnate that was a, not an antibiotic, not a vaccine, that was their, their thing, and it was a stimulating the innate immune system. So essentially, they if you knew you were about to put your cap on a truck and send him away for 12 hours where he's going to be really stressed, if you gave the Delnate product, it would potentially protect from a bacterial pneumonia. So in other words, it's helping his immune system be ready to respond quickly and more robustly as opposed to potentially letting that pathogen become established. Um, and so I think when it hit the field, it did okay. It did um, maybe not as well as they were expecting it to. And so in our lab, we've kind of taken that idea and said, can we make it better? Um, so we have some uh, they're kind of nanoparticle formulations that we worked with some engineers at Iowa State to generate. And you can use different polyanhydride chemistries. Don't ask me what a polyanhydride is because I'm not a chemist, but 
<laughs> uh, we can make these particles of different formulations so that they kind of erode really quickly or really slowly. And so you can put payloads in them and it's like a bar of soap, right? So they kind of melt away layer after layer to release whatever you've put into these particles. Um, and so we're interested in um, if we can put different immunostimulants into these particles that will help that calf be primed for a certain amount of time, right? So we give them a dose of nanoparticles and immunostimulants are released um, over time, you know, for the first seven days, maybe his immune system is getting the signals he needs to be primed, um, then he can be protected from, from infection. <laughs> Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, actually. Well, okay. So first to follow up, I should probably know the name of the actual institute, but tell us about the nano insert actual name here. Um, the group at Iowa State. I'm not involved with that, but you obviously are. And I know that's something that they're pretty excited about. Um, yeah. So the Nano Vaccine Institute at Iowa State, yeah, they're, they're a very large group. They work on all sorts of um, drug delivery, vaccine delivery platforms and cancer and infectious diseases. And we've had um, quite a long pro uh, project going with them for actual like vaccine development. Um, and then we took that idea and said, oh, maybe we can, instead of trying to target the adaptive immune system, right, so generating antibodies cells, can we prime the innate immune system more robustly? I think one of the most fascinating things about the idea of the nanoparticles to deliver anything, whether it's a nutrient or something to stimulate the innate immune system, is that it it takes it from something that is going to have an effect today because you talked about this idea that it could be kind of slow release, right? So it could be something where it's like, I want a little bit today, but I want a little bit more next week and I want it to last several weeks. So I think the timing idea is fascinating, right? So many research questions that could come from there. But I also keep coming back to this idea of like moving us towards one animal treatment as opposed to something for the whole pen, right? How do we go from doing pen level decisions for 100 head and instead making one animal's decisions, right? This is what this calf needs versus another. So let's circle that around to some of the things that we've started to do some work with or have been thinking about. And that's really, really related to how do we figure out what to, what nutrients to give this sick calf, right? So you kind of hinted on, you know, you talked about vitamin A, you talked about zinc and things like that. But we also have something like nutritional immunity going on in that sick animal, right? So actually... If I had an animal that had BRD really, you know, really aggressively, we know we should expect to see things like plasma zinc and plasma iron will decrease, right? Because his body is potentially removing those away from pathogens, being able to use them to replicate their own DNA and stuff. But also maybe they're being relocated, the things like zinc are maybe being relocated to do T-cells and, you know, stimulation or something like that. So, um... I guess maybe the question here is, what do you think are some of the like low-hanging fruit on this tree of how do we find the right nutrition to support the immune system of this sick calf? My goal here was really to ask the hardest questions. So okay, I'm like, uh. <laughs> well, okay. So so we've been doing some work with looking like at injectable trace minerals. And I guess maybe the question should be here, should we be trying to get ahead of this animal before they get sick? Or is it something we should be focusing on? Okay, they're already sick. I already have to pull them in because I'm going to give them an antibiotic or some kind of treatment. 
do I hit him with something at this point, whether it's an intranasal something that gets developed or whether it's a injectable trace mineral or send him to the hospital pen and give him a bunch of trace minerals in the diet. Right. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think we're both in agreement that prevention is, is the best measure, right? And we've been definitely interested in thinking about how some of these trace minerals can be preventive. Um, although I just don't know that that's always very practical in the beef world, right? I mean, if you have a great background or a, or a good relationship and you know what you're getting when that calf gets on the truck and then gets off again, I think that's a great place to intervene. Um, but I think definitely once we have identified that the calf, if there's something penicillin we can give, I mean, we've been looking at potential intranasal zinc or vitamin A treatment um, or injectables. We've, we've kind of been investigating both of those in our collaborative work. Um, that's always better than the hospital pen, right? That's the where calves go to die, as we've discussed many times. Um, I think that that question of whether you should give sick animals a trace mineral treatment, right, whether it's an injectable or an intranasal, if the immune system is pulling that away on purpose, um, is, is it for a reason? I don't know that we have the answer yet, but that's some of our, our recent work. So if we give the trace mineral to that sick calf, even though immune system is pulling it out of circulation, is that going to be a good thing or is it going to make it look? Um, we don't know. Yeah. Yet, but Well, I love that. Regardless of whether it's immune function, I mean, you kind of started this conversation by talking about stress, right? And stress was one of the things that can make an animal who would have been resistant or resilient to BRD suddenly break with it because he's got a little bit of immunosuppression going on because of a long haul transit event or stress from commingling or weaning or insert your favorite stressor here, right? Like an off feed event because it, you know, snowed 15 inches in North Dakota last week, like whatever. Um yeah, like stuff happens, right? This is the beef industry. It's it's It happens. I love this idea of how do we figure out the right nutrition for that animal to be most, in a perfect world, resilient to all of the that stressor, right? So that he doesn't get as sick because he's more resilient to it. But in the worst case situation, how do we give him the nutrition to be more, have a more rapid recovery from it? And those may be the same nutrients, but they might actually be a little bit different depending what it ends up looking like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think think think. Of course, our favorite uh, trace mineral is one that's going to help us promote that, just based on some of our work so far. But um, yeah, time will tell. <laughs> you know, one of the things um, this is going to be out of left field was we've never really talked about vitamin C very much. But vitamin C is something that we don't tend to think about in most of our domestic livestock species because they are largely able to make vitamin C from glucose, unlike us who has to have our OJ, right? Um, vitamin C, some of Jim Roth's old neutrophil data and stuff, right, would suggest that it's very important, like in neutrophil functions. Um, do you think there's opportunity for something like vitamin C? That's something that we could give as an injection and be low toxicity risk, or it's something that could be in a room of protected form in the diet that would be more expensive and, you know, more of a hassle and maybe take longer to get the change, but it's doable. Yeah, I think vitamin C is very cool. I think, well, on vitamin E too. So I think they're, uh, Oxidative stress and antioxidant balance are definitely emerging as really important um, for animal health overall um, as, and performance. I mean, you've studied a lot from performance or handling of transit stress, um, but from an immune function aspect, we're starting to understand that more too. And oxidative stress causes 
neutrophil dysfunction and macrophage dysfunction. And so it kind of impacts your immune system as well as your animal, um, you know, ability to, to resist infection. So I think vitamin C would definitely be cool. Um, and we've talked about vitamin E before as well. And there's solid evidence in literature that vitamin A, vitamin E supplementation improves oxidative balance and, and overall health, I think. So, yeah. Would you agree that the vitamin E literature seems to be more in like the pharmacological level responses? So like when we've done things at more physiological levels, like maybe 25 to, you know, or so like parts per million, basically we see, you know, improvements in vitamin E status, but we don't see big, like tighter responses and stuff. But when we jump to that, like thousand IU per head per day, kind of pharmacological doses, we see those differences. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think that's a really good point that you and I often have to consider too with that. Do we want to give physiologic doses or are we truly trying to get these pharmacologic doses and impact um, something in a big way, right? I mean, that's more expensive and maybe not ideal in every situation, but um, for the desired effect, sometimes you have to use a sledgehammer. (laughs) You know, sometimes you go to a random meeting and somebody else you know, tell you an anecdotal story. And I feel like one of the ones that I've heard some folks talk about is when they have a respiratory poll, they'll give a sub-Q injection of vitamin C. And we've done some IM work with vitamin C delivery prior to trucking and seen positive effects with that. And they were talking about giving a much larger dose, but it was sub-Q. So I assume that that's maybe part of it. Um, And, you know, claimed that they had better recoveries from respiratory disease and things like that when they gave, you know, their antibiotic in conjunction with a vitamin C injection. So always that would that that would be something interesting to follow up on. We never have a problem coming up with ideas to do experiments. <laughs> we, we do not. We have lots of ideas. So all right. So one last thing I wanted you to be able to talk about a little bit before we go to our famous three questions here and wrap up. Um I think one of the most fascinating things I've learned from you over the years was how pro-inflammatory dairy cattle are. So I feel like some of this has been comments on like when you've done dairy calf work versus like working with my big beef steers, which I know never get sick enough for your liking (laughs) on our challenge trials. But tell us just a little bit about understanding like what does that mean that dairy cattle are more pro-inflammatory than beef cattle? And what are some of the implications for that as we think about things like dairy beef calves coming into the feedlot? Yeah. Um, so a lot of our original work has been in, well, I mean, everybody knows that the dairy calves up and die if you look at them funny, right? Um, and a lot of our experimental infection work has been done in, um, has been done in dairy calves. And I, when we do experimental challenges with some of our pathogens, even though these guys have maternal antibodies, I mean, I can kill uh, 20% of them. So one in five will get sick enough that I have to euthanize them ahead of time. Whereas um, your beef cattle, yeah, as you've mentioned, we can give them, you know, the same type of pathogen and the same situation. Uh, and they just laugh at us, you know, they don't actually cough once maybe and, and proceed with that. And so there is quite a bit of... Um, uh, the, it's not as well published, but I think a lot of people have done some comparisons of dairy and beef. I mean, even if you just take blood cells and look at their ability to mount a response in a dish, like that assay we talked about earlier, um, dairy animals will make twice as much 
PNF alpha and IL-6 and those things that cause fever and systemic acute phase responses, right? And so I think that that just shows us that part of it's genetic, right? We've created that pro-inflammatory animal, um, which makes sense with all the metritis and the mastitis or inflammation-associated diseases, right? Um, they're just, their immune system just gets out of control. So what that means for your dairy beef calf, um, I, I think that's a, a great question. I think sometimes people see, you know, hybrid vigor a little bit, right? We've sh- done some dairy beef crop work where those guys were just so much tougher than our straight Holstein. Um, but when you put them into the feedlot, we know they do not fare very well. They, um, you know, they get sick with respiratory disease or they have liver abscesses, which are, again, uh, an inflammatory associated disease. So I think we have to remember they're just going to, their immune system is louder, I think, than a straight beef animal, a native beef animal. So it, it changes like how they respond. Yeah, I like that. Their immune system is louder. That's a good way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. It's time for our famous three. All right. So let's wrap up here with our final three questions. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? <laughs> I, I'm i going to have to say the carnivore cookbook. So we talked about this and <laughs> I'm like, why don't I love it? I do immune system. I have an immune reference and you said I should do a recipe book. So I like the carnivore cookbook. That's an excellent ribeye. <laughs> nice. Nice. Excellent. Okay, second question. What's a book not related to beef that you're reading right now? Um, I am into detective murder mysteries. So lately I've been rereading um, some of the Alex Cross books. I'm reading Kiss the Girls right now, which has got a pretty horrible serial killer in it. So. I love a good serial killer book. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Can't wait until yours comes out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Okay, final question. What is a trait of someone you admire that has helped make them successful? Um, I would say my dad probably is somebody who I like to model myself after because he has very excellent, um, he's a calm leader. He takes lots of things, no matter how dramatic, and he takes them in stride and is able to, uh, to lead even the most distressed individual i guess you could say so i don't know that i have that skill but i'm working <laughs> i'm not nearly as calm as he is <laughs> that sounds like an excellent model for all of us <laughs> take a deep breath and then try to lead <laughs> absolutely all right well this has been a great uh conversation jody we appreciate you coming on the show today yes thank you for having me 